Welcome to My Life Chassidus Supplies, episode 416. A good Nechedesh Elul. Today is the second day of Rosh Chedesh Elul. Begins a new month, but it's a special month. And we'll obviously speak about that in this program, as well as the connection to this week's chapter and other relevant and timely matters. Much of it generated through your generous and insightful questions. This program is dedicated to the merit of Baruch bin Yaman ben Menucha Lana and Miriam Baschaya Sara Altez, Yukusil ben Leir Rochlan Rochel Basliba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todras ben Miriam and Sara Bas Rochel Altez. We also want to wish a Mazel Tov to our dear colleague and friend, Belville, and his wife, Sarah Farkas, on the marriage of their children this week, as well as offering everyone who is having Simchas a Mazel Tov and blessings. And by extension, being that this is Rosh Chodesh we say to each other, it should be a blessed year, a year of health, a year of long life, a year of Geula which in turn will already resolve so many other issues, a year of abundance and success in every possible way, materially and spiritually. And the context of Chassidus apply, the year that we spread Chassidus in a way that is Mola Arz Deyas Hashem Kemayim Le'yam filling the world with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. In the words of Mashiach to the Baal Shem Tov, when will I come? He asked him, when will you come? Mashiach answered, when your wellsprings, the inner wellsprings of Torah and Chassidus will be spread and disseminate Chutzah to the outskirts, which literally means to every corner of the earth. And in doing so, we fulfill our personal mission, our calling, why we are here in this world. So, the month of El is called by two names. Well, it has many names, but specifically two names it's a cheshben as an accountability, being the last month of the year of everything that happened this past year, and a cheshben ha'chona, preparing us for the next year. And both of these come together as an interface, because if you want to prepare for what is coming, you have to also make sure that you have assessed what has happened. You don't want to repeat similar mistakes. You want to improve and grow. So that's what this month, it's a month of introspection. The month is also called Chedesh HaRachamim, month of compassion, of mercy. One of the reasons for that, the primary reason, is because this is a month, literally, when Moshe Rabbeinu goes up on Rosh Chedesh El, there are two opinions, whether it's the first day of Rosh Chedesh, the 30th day of Av, or the second day of Rosh Chedesh, which is the first day of El, he goes up on the mountain the third time to beg for forgiveness for, to, for the Jewish people, after the great sin of the golden calf. And indeed, 40 days from now will be Yom Kippur, and he's granted that forgiveness. That's why we say right after Kol Nidre, three times, that God says, Salachti Kidvarecha. I have forgiven Kidvarecha as you have spoken. Which is interesting, not just I have forgiven. Moshe Rabbeinu elicited it. It came from a call from below. But that was the great Moses, the great Moshe. Gained for us forever perhaps the greatest blessing of all, the blessing of hope, of forgiveness, that even when things may be broken and even when things may not work out always the way we want it, there's always a second chance. There's always the ability 
to open the back door. And Yom Kippur is the most sacred day of the year, the holiest day of the year, because precisely that. It tells us no matter what happens, you can always reach deeper and access higher and deeper levels of godliness, of our own soul, which transcends and is beyond any wound, any injury, any setback, any pain, any fear, any insecurity. So that's what this month represents, the month of Rachamim, when God reveals to Moshe Rabbeinu the secret of the 13 attributes, the Yud Gimel Midas Rachamim, the 13 attributes of divine compassion, which was a tremendous revelation of being able to access something when, so to speak, all else fails. The ability to reach deeper into God himself and deeper into our own souls. The narrative is told in the, in the Torah, in the chapter Kisisa, as Moshe is communicating with God and asking for this, praying for forgiveness, praying for God to give the people another chance. And that's when those attributes are revealed. So it's in this month, and of course, this will accelerate Rosh Hashanah, especially Yom Kippur. We repeat the Yud Gimel that God revealed to Moshe Rabbeinu during this time. So it's called a month of compassion. And for that reason, the famous example of the Alter Rebbe, that Melech Basada, the month of El is called the King is in the Field. Where does that come from? So it's an example to answer a very obvious question. Since the divine attributes of compassion are radiating in this month, isn't that what defines a holiday? What makes a holiday a special day? Or for that matter, Shabbos, a special day? Because there's a special divine energy. It's not just a randomly chosen day. There's more expression, there's more revealed divine power and energy, and therefore that day becomes a holy day, a good day, Yom Tev. So since the 13 attributes of divine compassion are radiating throughout the whole month of El, the whole month of El should have been holidays. Why are they weekdays? Answers the Alter Rebbe with an example that a king, even though his primary place is in the palace, but when he's traveling on his way back to his palace, so before he gets there, he goes through the fields where he meets the people, the people, his subjects who are working in the field. And of course, since the king is traveling, he's also not in the full glory as he is in his inner sanctum. So he explains the Melech is Besada then in the month of El, before he returns to the palace on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, in the example, and everyone could go over to him. Usually you need an appointment, and even that would be difficult to get, to have access to the king in his palace. But here in the field, in his travels, anyone can go over to him and, he, and ask for whatever they want, and he grants them a request, the Savior upon him office with a smiling face. So it's a certain accessibility that the month of El provides. So the whole point is, yes, it's a high revelation, but it's a revelation that's coming in the weekday terms. It's coming to us besoda in the field, meaning in our work. Shabbos in Yontiv is days we're not supposed to work. And then we elevate ourselves to a more transcendent place. Here, the transcendence is coming to us on our terms. So it's Mela Besoda, that's why El are weekdays. If you think about it, it's a very powerful example. It also teaches you what this month is about. There's obviously great quality to Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. This is not diminishing, God forbid, that. It's just saying that that is when you access the deeper divine powers of those holidays. Rosh Hashanah's renewal, Yom Kippur's sanctity, hope, forgiveness, and everything we mentioned, and more. But on our terms, sometimes you say, you know what? I'm not yet ready to enter the palace. 
or not worthy, or I'm not pure enough, says, no, God comes some, on your terms. The month before that is a month where you are in the field, in your workplace. Your hands may be dirty, literally or figuratively, and other aspects of your life have not yet been completely perfected as much as you'd like to be. So in preparation for entering the palace, here's a time where you can commune with God. God is on our terms as well. God is not, you don't find God more in the palace than he is in the field. Yes, it's more revealed. And it's on a higher, deeper level because you have the king in his full glory, so to speak, in his own location. But he's with us also in the field, even on our terms, even when we haven't changed our garments and we're still working in our field, in our work, and we may be have smudged or stained or in other ways been affected or corrupted or polluted, I would say, by the world around us, which of course is not at the essential level, but at a certain level. And even then, everyone can go over and ask what they wish, which is also an opportunity ask for everything you wish, and you receive it with a smile. And we all know that when you receive something with a smile, it's, that itself is also a gift. That's also a blessing. So that's briefly an overview of this month. But most importantly, in applying it to our lives, it's to personalize it. Think about it, you as an individual. Let's not talk about it in a group form. As an individual, wherever you are right now, whatever status, obviously it's expected for you to do whatever you can. But the minimum is that even if in the middle of a work day, even when you're overwhelmed, even when you're confused or other things are troubling you, the matters of the field know that this month the king is with you. And that if you just reach out, you can access something you cannot access any other time of the year. And in many ways, that prepares us to be able to enter Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur in a much more powerful way. So every day in the month of El is, is precious in that sense, and, should, and let's use it to its fullest. A number of years ago, in addressing this issue, being that I interact and communicate and teach many different types of people and audiences and background, of all backgrounds, many who may not have had the privilege to grow up to know what Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is, and many that did grow up with it but don't really know how to personalize or make it relevant. And I discovered the paradox that we all see. On one hand, these are considered the days of awe, the greatest days of the year. And many people anticipate a new year, a new beginning, be able to start, turn a new leaf in another page in my life, grow, everyone in their own way. And yet, very often, we come Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur with that enthusiasm, and it doesn't always live up to what our expectations are. Not, and we're not pointing fingers here, why? But something, some disconnect. So I felt the need, it's a longer story of different people I interacted with who just tried and they couldn't experience, they couldn't get in touch and they found other ways to try to connect spiritually that were not necessarily traditional ways. So that, in a way, provoked me to dig deeper and I began to read the prayers in a deeper way and start teaching them that way. And I composed a book called 60 Days precisely for this purpose. A journey that begins now, not Rosh Hashanah, it begins in the month of El, right today and yesterday. A journey day by day, called 60 Days, a journey, a spiritual guide to the high holidays. Now, obviously, I, I composed it so, therefore, I'm somewhat subjective, but still, I think it's worth looking at. 
check it out. And it actually became much more successful than I imagined, with many groups following it, individuals. And it allows you to do this in a more digestible way. It's hard to read a full book of three, 400 pages. But if you do it day by day, every day has its own thought and exercise, it has facts, historical facts, customs, laws, interesting insights, all in a very uh, bite-sized way with an entire section on prayer, a companion to the prayers to help understand and unravel them. And, but most importantly, personalize it all into a personal spiritual journey of growth, of development, and yes, of reconciliation and rebuilding if indeed there was a loss or a pain or a hurt. Because we all have these three stages where we're in love, where we're connected, where we feel we belong, and then there may be a break, like the Cheta Egel, like the sin of the golden calf. Some dissonance, some disconnect. And then we may feel it's lost. So we say, no, you can rebuild, and rebuild even greater than it was before. So it's the three steps of the connection, of some disconnect or dissonance, and then rebuilding greater than ever. That's the journey of the 60 days. El and Tishrei. So you can check out, the book is available. You can also subscribe to a daily email that has like a short excerpt of this, of each day's um, insight and exercise, as well as a podcast on it and other, just check it out. You can go to MeaningfulLife.com and uh, you'll see all the details there. I think it's a great tool, a great companion in this journey that we begin literally today. So everybody journey well, and we will uh, talk more about this as the program continues. But this is somewhat of an introduction to this special month, Elul, the month of account, accounting, the month of preparation, the month of compassion, the month when the king is in the field. So let's talk about a few questions that came in about actually the month of Elul in this context. What should we be doing during the month of Elul? Okay, well, starting on a very basic level, the first thing we should be doing is the accountability. Accountability is in the details. Everything's in the details. It's not it's difficult to just say. If you're running a business, okay, did we do well or did we not do well? What does that mean? Let's break it down. How did we do in the revenue? How did we do in our our customer support? How do we do in our employee morale? I mean, there's many aspects to running a good organization or a good company. Same thing in your personal life. It's looking at specifics. In the book, 60 Days, I talk about this, how you did in relation to others. How you did in relationship to God. And break it down. And we can break it down into the three main pillars upon which the world stands, upon which each individual stands. How did you do in the area of your cognitive awareness, of godliness, of your purpose, of transcendence? Learning Torah. How did you do in your emotional experiences? Prayer, And how did you do in your behavioral, in your actions? In your kindness, in your charity, in your behavior with others and interacting with them. So... And then figure it out, not just for one day, but throughout the month, throughout the months of the year. Twelve months in the year. This past year was 13 months because it was a year, it was a leap year. Each month. 
and make highlights. There's nothing wrong with starting a journal and really writing down how, how, how did things work. You break it down even further between you and yourself, between you and your spouse, between you and your family, between you and your friends, and you and strangers, you and your community, colleagues, co-workers. And you'll be surprised to find that when you actually look at it in detail, you can actually, I don't know if you should do a report card, but you could. Like say, one to 10, how was this? What were the good things that happened? What were the things that need improvement? That's called accountability. Now to do that, you have to obviously invest time and energy and care. You can't do it in three minutes, like any good accountability. That in turn prepares you how to prepare for the next year by saying, okay, here are the areas that can use improvement. Here are the areas that I can do a lot better. Here are areas that were great, but can even be greater. Here are areas that need to correct. I mean, there's so many ways to proceed, but each of us has our own customized journal, so to speak. And that's how you do it, day by day. Don't do it in any way. Don't bite off more than you can chew because that usually doesn't work. That alone is already cleaning up your act, so to speak, because you're, taking, uh, you're being accountable. You're taking stock, soul searching. That's on a very basic level. Now, more specifically, that's why Elul has different acronyms. And they correspond to the three that I just mentioned, Teda, Ved, Mils, Chasad, and plus two more acronyms. One is Anshuva and one is Geula. Tshuva is a general concept of return. Return where? To who you really are. Are you living, are you living up to your own destiny? Ayeka, where are you? As God asked Adam in the Garden of Eden. Question asked to each of us, where are you? Are you living up to your calling, to your destiny? And Geula is the destination of it all leading to a better world, leading to a personal and global redemption. So these are some of the things we should be thinking about and acting on during this month. Obviously, if amends have to be made, asking for forgiveness, someone you may have hurt, all that goes into this uh, category. So that's a general response to the question, what we should be doing. In Sfarim, it talks about, as a result, as, as a, in, in, as a result of what I just summarized, that we should actually be adding, adding in tefillah, adding in learning Torah, and adding in uh, tzedakah, increasing in all of them. Why did I start with tefillah? Because it says in some svarim that some who were scholars would spend more time tachnunim with prayer, a little less time in learning. Not because learning is less important, because it's a chedesh arachimim, and tefillah is very appropriate. But the truth is all three should be, we should increase in all three. Keep in mind also, this is a year of Shemitah. Shemitah is a time when people took off time from work and did more learning Torah. And it's preparing us for the next year, which is a year of Hakel, of gathering. But we'll talk about that as we get closer to the new year, more details. More specifically, regarding the work of El, dear Rabbi Jacobson, I asked my husband what achlotas tevis he was going to make for the new year, what new resolutions, good resolutions, and he said he will make the positive resolution to stand all the way up during Moedim Darabonim instead of just lazily lifting his, himself three inches off the bench. So Moedim Darabonim is when the chazan, the cantor, repeats the Shem Esrei, comes to Moedim. So the community, the, the minion, the kehila, says Moedim Darabonim while he's saying Moedim out loud. 
and there's a custom to rise. So he says he's going to rise all the way. So continuing with the, the, this question, I'm sure he was just joking around, but it made me think. We all have our capabilities and limitations. What are some good middle ground achlotus we should make for the new year that doesn't overreach into areas we would have difficulty achieving, but also doesn't underestimate our abilities? Thank you, and have a sweet and happy new year. Very good question. So I alluded to it before, don't bite off more than you can chew. Part of real growth is not just coming in with this gung-ho attitude, I can do everything. Now, often we get inspired and we feel, okay, I'm going to change it all. And then you start recognizing it doesn't go, that work that easily. The key is to do it in a way that works. That's why it's so vital when we say, kvies itim lutere to designate time to learn Tater, which means every day learning five minutes can be more powerful than what learning one day for five hours. Even though five hours is a lot more than five times 35, 35 minutes, so I'm not taking away from that, but there's something about the daily routine. Besides the fact that it, it counters and it includes in your daily routine, not just menial, survival-based activities, it also creates, it becomes part of your life. And when it's part of your life, it's like eating and drinking. You don't just do it once a week. Or breathing. You need it all the time. The more you feed your soul, the more you commit, the more it becomes part of you. And far like, more likely that it will be sustained. To do that, you can't do it five hours a day for many people. If you could, you could. But most people can't. Simply due to other responsibilities. So you have to find what works for you very hard for me to give a formula to each individual listening to this because everyone has different circumstances. But the formula works like this. Find in your life, personally, what is doable. I think in the month of El, everybody can add 10 minutes, 15 minutes. You want to make it a half hour? I'd rather be conservative than go too crazy simply because it'll be much more sustainable. And designate. Designate every day in the month of El 15 more minutes I'm going to read something. I'm going to read something in the Pasha, the Rambam, in Chesidus, and also find something that speaks to you. Like it says in the Gemara when the student asked his teacher, where should I begin learning? He said, B'mokim where your heart desires. Why didn't he tell him he's the teacher? He knows, he, knows the, the, he knows the landscape. Because it's important that your heart be there. It's something you enjoy, much more likely you're going to do it. So find 15 minutes every day. Do it with a chavrusa, with a partner. Do it with your spouse. So on that, and, 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 because it makes it easier to commit. And the same thing in davening. It's not about the quantity. Choose a tefillah that maybe you haven't chosen yet. It could be moida'ani, it could be shema, it could be baruch shama, it could be shemines. Some prayer. And focus on what it means. And that day's davening. And every, say, I'm going to focus on it. Again, for a few extra minutes. So it's not the quantity, it's the quality and the investment where you put all your energy into it and that's where change is created. The same thing increasing in stock. You give every day a dollar, you give two dollars a day, you give a dollar fifty a day. I'm just using that as an example, it could be any number. But as an increase, the Alter Rebbe explains in chapter 15 in Tanya, going beyond the routine, meaning going beyond what you're accustomed to doing, is the key to its real shift, to real avoda, to real work, because that's where shifts happen. 
not to take away from good habits, but it becomes a habit, it doesn't have that growth element. So that's what I would suggest, some things, and it's again applying yourself, you take it seriously, it's not a difficult thing to do. The hard part is the inertia of the status quo. We're used to our lives. To do anything new takes a lot more effort. It's like getting into first gear takes a lot more effort than getting into second gear. So that's why in the beginning, it's important to keep, keep to it. And that's why it's important to keep it day by day. L is at the end of the day, 30 days. 29, 30 days where you have a whole month to prepare it. And then, of course, comes the next days, which is also part of it. But it tells you that it doesn't all have to be done in one day. Much better to do it day by day and step by step. It would also help to talk to your mentor, Tamashpia, the someone you trust, because they sometimes can give you a perspective a little more objective or tell you, I think you're doing too little for yourself. You should be doing more. Or maybe you're taking on too much. Maybe you try a little less but make sure it's continuous. Also someone you can answer to, be accountable to, can only help in making this part of your life. And obviously the goal is that this becomes, changes all of your life, not just the month of L. It's not like you give it up afterwards. It becomes part of our daily routines and we continue to grow from strength to strength. Another person writes, one way of looking at L is that it's a month where Hashem is most, more approachable. Spoke about that before, Melech Basada, the king in the field. But the other way to look at it is that for the other 11 months, Hashem makes himself less approachable. Why would Hashem do that? Is this a big game? Are we playing hide and seek like little children? Why can't we have access to talk directly to and receive directly answers from Hashem 24 hours a day, every day of the year? Very good question. And indeed, the example you're giving is the example given in Chesidus, starting from the Arizal, Tzimtzum, God concealing his presence, Haster, Haster, Pone, in the language of the Posek and Vayelach in Chumash. God conceals himself. The Moshe of the Magid that the Rebbe quotes, famous Sichet, Tu Bishvat, Tav everyone probably is aware of it. If not, it's worthwhile listening to. The Rebbe crying uncontrollably. Now the father conceals himself from his child, which is an example of the tzimtzum, in order to elicit the ingenuity of the child to find the father. But the father knows how to hide himself well. And the child looks and looks, and like the Rebbe says, Zunti gezucht, Monte gezucht, Dinste gezucht. He seeks his father on Sunday, on Monday, on Tuesday. He doesn't find him. At some point, he gives up. But as Nitschuldik, as the Rebbe says there, it's not his fault. Because God concealed himself somewhere. And how, how well can you, can you seal, conceal yourself? The point, however, of the concealment is Simpson Bishvila Gili. It was never meant to be an end in itself. So the idea why God is not revealed is a fundamental question all of Yiddishkeit and all of Torah and all of Chassidus. And the answer is that's called... Uh, Nesava Kodesh Baruch Hu, God desired to have. Liyasleiz Baruch Dira B'Tachtenim, a home Tachtenim. Says the Alter Rebbe in chapter 36 in Tanya, what's Tachtenim? Not physical space, the lowest part, the lowest floor. It's the lowest in levels of concealment, where the divine is completely concealed in contrast to the higher worlds. Which higher also doesn't mean physically, it means spiritually, conceptually. Atzillus, Briyat, see the higher worlds where the divine is more apparent more revealed. 
but he wants in this world. That's the whole purpose. Why he wants, why desire, nesav and shtuk and kasha. No question on a desire. But I don't want to go into that. It's not this point of the discussion now. But he did conceal himself. That's exactly the purpose. And yet, it's not airtight. In the language of Chassidus, though that Simpson happened, it's not Simpson kipshute, it's not literal, it's only a concealment, not a removal. And even after the concealment, there's a reshimu, a trace, an impression that remains. So it's not completely void. And then afterwards comes a kav, a ray of light, of gilui, a ray of hope, if you wish. Our job is to not buy into and surrender to the tzimtzum, to the concealment, and recognize that it's only there to elicit deeper strengths. The sham is sent down below. Yes, it has to be imposed on the soul, because the soul, why would it want to leave a beautiful, warm environment in heaven to go into a dark world, a hostile world, a corrupt world, a polluted world, on so many levels? The shayim gavenberg, the wicked, uh, the dominate, Moli Klippas Vesitra using language from Tanya, from Eitzchayim, filled with negative energies, concealed energies, because here's where the purpose is fulfilled. So it's not airtight, and it's our Aveda is to see through the darkness and reveal that inner light in our souls, in the soul of everything that exists, and the sparks of the divine that are everywhere embedded in existence. And when we do that, that's called Birurim to clarify, to separate, and ultimately elevate these sparks. And when we do that, it accumulates. That's called Gola. Gola with an Aleph. You're revealed in the Gola, in the concealment, you reveal the Aleph, Alufah And that's Gola, a transformed world that recognizes within the product, we see the producer. Within the creation, we see the creator. Every part of creation will know that you, are its creator. You're the craftsman. You're the artist. God is the artist that created this art. And it's revealed. Now, several times in the year, we have more opportunity. It's more auspicious time. Like you say, this doesn't mean God is with us all the time, 24-7, exactly as you said, every day of the year. But like in anything, there are sometimes more veils and less veils. When you stand at the Kaisal, the Western Wall, or you go to a shul, a Migdash Ma'at, a mini sanctuary, and you daven, is it because God is more in a shul than he is in the street? No, it's, there's less veils. There are less partitions, less simtsumim, less concealments. So it's easier to access. That's why we say, Besiege God when, he's, can be, when he's found. Call out to him when he's close. So what do you mean? He's always close. He's always close to us, but we don't always feel it. And there are times where the mother comes closer to the nitzutz, the example that Chassidus brings, that the source, the mother light, comes closer to the spark, and the spark feels the mother coming closer, and it's, and it's drawn to it. That's in the month of Tishrei, Tishrei Hashem The month of Elul, Melech Basada. There are times more approachable, meaning there are less layers. But the king is always with us, obviously. And that's why any time, call Yom HaBetshuva, a person could do tshuva any moment. Don't have to wait for Elul Tishrei, obviously. But then there are times, just like we say, Shabbos and Yontif. Is God with us more on Shabbos? But there are less veils. It's called Aliyah Sa'ilim, as the worlds are more refined, less resistance. Like it isn't anything. Like, you know, let's say you have a relationship with, you, with someone you love. There are times where the relationship is somewhat strained, or 
people are busy with their own thing and they need their space, so it's more concealed. There are times when you see the person that loves you embracing you, welcoming you. That doesn't mean the love isn't there all the time. It just means there are times it's more revealed, sometimes less revealed. And one more question, even though there are many more, but we have a whole month of El to talk about it. Hi, Rabbi, you said that the high holidays are times for renewal. Can you please explain um, what, um, what practical steps can we take to actually experience renewal in the new year? Well, I think I answered this question. When you renew yourself, you become a container and a receptacle to channel renewal from above. It's as simple as that. If you have a sour face, and I don't mean that in any negative way, and you approach somebody and you ask them for something, you usually are not going to get it as easily than when you smile to them. And I mean a serious, I mean a sincere smile. In other words, what you bring to the table is what returns, like a mirror image in a way. Like a face is reflected in water, one heart is reflected in another heart. So you want renewal, create renewal. If you're going to continue through your inertia, you usually you'll get what you put in. I always like to say, if you think what you thought, and you say what you said, and you do what you did, what are you going to have? What you had. It's a mathematical certainty. But people feel, I want change. But if you don't change, where's the change going to come from? How is it being initiated? Now, sometimes there can be a gift from above, and you can pray for mercy, for, for grace. But much more likely that when you are proactive and you, gen- you initiate, it generates energy. You want something? Be proactive. So renewal is dependent on renewal, so to speak. And we see this all the time. Anyone that wants something new, do try something new. Because if nothing changes, nothing changes. You get the same thing that you had. That's on a very basic level. Details I mentioned earlier, and Teirah, Vedic, Chasodim, accountability, all the different things we discussed. Okay. This week is also Pasha Sheftim. And as we've been discussing in previous weeks, the chapters, though they each have their own theme, they also connected, obviously, to the month which, which we are in. So Sheftim, 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 Titim Lecha You shall appoint judges and law enforcers in all your municipalities, in all your gates, is the exact expression. Says the Sif Sekein al the Samach Sadiq cites him, that ever brings that in a number of his talks and Sikhs. What's Sharecha? That every person has seven gates, personally, in microcosm two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, and a mouth. That's seven. Place judges and place law enforcers at your gates to make sure what goes in, what goes out, is proper. Remember, what's going on within you is like within a city. But a city that has a wall around it to protect it is in order to allow, like you see, walled cities have gates, and people come in and out. It was mostly, besides the fact that these were distinguished cities usually, like Yerushalayim, city of a king, Kiryas Melech Rov. So it's for the honor, but it's also a protection, especially of the king and his people, the ones that lead, that need that extra protection, so that not everybody can just enter the gate. And what goes out as well is all monitored. So on a personal level, we have to monitor. What are you seeing with your eyes? What are you looking at? 
What are you listening to? What are you taking into your mouth and what are you speaking? And what are you smelling? All these are gates that connect us to the world around us. Without those gates, we'd just be self-contained, be a city with walls without gates. But we want gates. We want to bring in new things. We want to learn something new. We want to also give, give and take. That's what the gates are for. So the Pasha itself is telling you what the month of El is work. That's the month of El. That's the work. To place those judges, meaning reflecting upon judge. What does a judge do? He uses discretion, listens, and determines what's right and what's wrong. Law enforcer, Shaitrim, implements it. So once there's a judgment based by the judge, someone has to um, activate it. Someone has to bring it into action. You know, you can have a judgment, but it's not being implemented. So that's just a general connection. But in addition, there are some other specifics. So the Pasuk the in Sheftim says, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdev. They shall pursue justice, justice you shall pursue. A double. So Tzedek is an interesting word. Justice has many different words. So someone's asking, what exactly is justice and why are we obligated to pursue it? How should we define justice according to the Torah? Must we pursue social justice? Is that considered justice that we must pursue? So first of all, the word justice itself is an interesting word. In Hebrew, tzedek also means dukkah. Also connected to the word charity or kindness and benevolence. Because that's exactly what justice is. Many of us see justice as perhaps a necessary evil. I don't know if the right word is evil. But a necessary element when people have different interests and there's conflicts, you need someone to uh, apply justice to make sure there's a checks and balances and that we can coexist. When the Tater calls justice Zed Tzedek, it's telling it's much more than that. Justice is not just to prevent crime. It's not just preventive. It's not just the absence of crime. Law and order. It's also ultimately a charity. It's a kindness. Because the point of justice even if someone is found guilty, is not just to punish someone. It's to be a deterrent, and it's to bring kindness to the world. Part of kindness is you need discipline. Sometimes, or very many times, people see justice as an end in itself, and they become you know, the avenging angels, the avenging warriors. And they forget that the whole point is, that yes, you shall judge the people, meaning find things that are just, but make sure that those that are right are are upheld, those that are wrong are found guilty. So there's a sense of right and wrong in this world. But the goal of it is tzedek for everybody. Maybe that's why it's double tzedek. Tzedek for both those that are found guilt, uh, are innocent or the ones that, are, that benefit, that are merit, and those that do not merit because they were wrong. Being wrong is not necessarily unjust. That is justice too. And if you're an honest person and a good person, you learn from your mistakes. That's the point. So it's always the pursuit of tzedek that we're looking for. Now, what exactly is justice? That's, that's the laws of the land. That's the laws of Torah. The Torah knows best what is right and what is wrong. It tells us what it is. Now, many secular systems and institutions and governments and constitutions have taken ideas from the Torah, made a part of law, dina de machusa dina, and if it's just laws, they're part of justice as well. 
So all that goes into the category, even the Sheva Mitzvah Bnei Neich. One of them is establishing laws of justice. Courts of law, I should say. A system of justice and law and order. It's all part of creating a civilized society based, of course, on God's laws that we are, we are respecting each other and don't allow our self-interest to hurt each other. And there's all the different recourse and issues what you deal when there is damages or other forms of grievances. So it's really meant to create a beautiful world. That's why it's tzedek. That's the way I, one should understand this idea. Which again, even when you're cleaning up your act in Elul, it's not about the cleaning. Even though cleaning sometimes takes, yes, it may take a little effort and may even be painful to clean off a, 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 a dirt that has been, a, an infection that has become embedded. Sometimes you even need surgery, God forbid. But the surgery is only meant to help and cleanse. It's meant to heal. It's a healing agent. Healing requires two things, immunizing and preventive medicine, but sometimes you need intrusive medicine. But all of them are leading to tzaddik tzaddik tzaddik. Another question about this Pasha, why were people killed for worshipping idols? It's very foolish to worship idols. Why is it taken so seriously? Should people really be killed for stupidity? Okay. And it's not just that, it's the second of the Ten Commandments. It's a cardinal sin, Yadig Val Yavid. It's equated to murder and incest, the three things, which is including Avedizara. So the question only amplif- is amplified. What's, what's, and is God not, God's a secure God. He want, people want to be foolish and they want to worship a piece of stone or a piece of wood or a tree or a star or the sun or the moon. Okay, you want to be foolish, you're foolish. Why is God bothered by it so much? Almost sounds like he's jealous. And the answer, my friends, is very, very simple. The whole foundation and meaning of God is that you don't worship yourself. There's something greater than you that you submit to, including the laws that that God gives us. If you take away that piece, everything falls. Avedah Zara at its core is really self-worship. The Rambam explains it beautifully in the beginning of the laws of Avedah Zara. He says, how did that happen? Everyone was aware of God, created Adam and Eve and all human beings and the entire world. But then people wanted to have access. They felt God was invisible. And they didn't want to have the effort to go look for it so much. So they started looking for symbols. They said, what could be something that God created that we can identify with? Stars. Oh, we see the stars in heaven. They're God's creations. In the beginning, it was seen as God's vehicles. But then as time passes, the stars become an end in themselves. But the stars are also a little too distant. They're in the sky. So let's look at something on earth that corresponds to that star. A tree, a stone, a mountain. And slowly they began to worship that. And then came the next stage where people said, one second, let's build a sanctuary around this tree, around this stone. And let's charge a few dollars. I don't know if the Rambam adds that, but that's the idea. And slowly, what happened, what began with a very beautiful thing, people worshiping a god, was completely hijacked on a total detour where people start worshiping things that we can identify, a god on our terms. So instead of saying we were created in the divine image, 
We're creating a divine in our image. That is not just foolishness. That's the foundation of all problems. Because with that, then ultimately you're worshipping yourself, an extension of yourself of these idols that you, that you... Now that idol could be money, it could be power, it could be influence, it could be any other things. And what does it lead to? Ultimately it leads to the worst type of corruption, where I am now God. Now I'm not saying everybody began with that, but that's how you wander off. So God says in the Torah, Zara is a cardinal sin because you're going off the reservation. As soon as you say there's another God, it's not whether I'm jealous or not. It's you have undermined your ability to truly grow. Because at the end of the day, you're going to be worshiping yourself, which therefore the, the, the whole point of God, the whole point of Torah, the whole point of everything falls apart with that. And that's why it's such a serious crime. And that's why it's even the death penalty when proven and all the circumstances, which are not that simple, by the way, and all the evidence. But what, why is it conceptually? Because as soon as you cut yourself off from the true God, you're essentially cutting yourself off from true life. It's not a punishment. It's cause and effect. It's like someone's saying, someone jumps off a mountain, why do they die? No one's going to ask that question because that, that's what happens when you jump a mountain, off a mountain. Spiritually, there are also ways that we can kill ourselves when we disconnect from the very source of what really gives us life, which is the true source of life, by choosing something that is completely not, like eating poison instead of eating something healthy. Which also fits to this time, because the correction, the repair of Tshuva, of El, all the way up to Yom Kippur was what? Was the Tshuva and the healing and the forgiveness for the sin of idolatry of building a golden calf. And a golden calf can exist in many different forms and shapes in our lives. Okay. Hello, Rabbi Simon. The Torah appears to be supportive of a monarchy. What does the Torah think about democracy? Thank you. So referring to another verse in this parasha, Tosim Alech HaMelech, appoint a king. So based on that, it's very clear that's a monarchy. A king has a certain amount of power a pretty absolute type amount of power. And yes, there were many corrupt kings in, in Israel, in Judah, Yehuda. And uh, it would seem to suggest the Torah advocates monarchy. As a matter of fact, there's a very interesting book um, called the, the... will come to me in a moment. The Hebrew... a book that makes documents that they, through the generations, the Christians and the general Gentile world embraced monarchies because that's how they read the Bible, that the monarchy was divinely sanctioned. And they didn't see any other option. It was only when they began to read and develop the translations and understand the nuances that they came to discover that the book of Samuel Shmuel Novi rejects the people when they want to have a king. And when they turn to and, and then when they insist, he turns to God. And God says, let them have a king. So the question is, what do you mean? There's a mitzvah in the Torah to appoint a king. Why was Shmuel against it? Because he realized they weren't looking for it from the point of view of Torah. They wanted it for the nationalistic purposes, for their own pride, their own arrogance. They wanted to be like other nations. It was more from an ego point of view. But God said, nevertheless, and that's when he appointed King Saul, 
Later, King David would become the permanent family of kings, as was meant to be. So when they, the scholars began to read that, I'm talking about the secular scholars, and they understood it, they saw one second. Monarchy is not so simple. A monarchy has to be a certain type of monarchy. When it says in the, in the mitzvah of, of having a king, it was not just to have a king who's uh, the most powerful, because he's the humblest person, and he's help, uh, is meant to bring humility to the people, to be a role model of humility. As he explains in Mitzvah's Minrei Melech, Samach Tzedek has a very powerful mimer based on the Alter Rebbe's mimer, the mitzvah of appointing a king, and discusses exactly this. Why was Shmuel upset? It's a mitzvah. Because Shmuel saw it was not coming because they wanted Bitl. It was the opposite. They wanted, Ari, they wanted ego. Most people, you think of a leader, you think who has the most wealth, who has the most power, who's the most charisma, who's the most ambitious, who's the most, who's the most ruthless. You think of a leader today. Who climbed the ladder? The people who are most aggressive. People who are maybe even most corrupt at times. People who are able to manipulate or able to generate the most money. The Torah says, no, a melech is there to bring bitl, malchus, bitl, humility. A person who's complete servant of God. David, he was a shepherd. Like Moshe Rabbein, the humblest man that ever walked on earth. That's a true melech. And that teaches us what bitl is. A melech that's an arrogant king. It's true that a king has free will, and therefore you have kings that were arrogant and corrupt, and they did corrupt the people, and they create serious damage. But that was not the point of a king. That was kings who went off the way. So it's like any person has free will. The point of a king is the bitl. And when the scholars recognized that, they, uh, they came to, the, 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 the book is the Hebrew Republic, now I remember. The Hebrew Republic. When they came to realize that one second, a monarchy, and then they realized many monarchies were very corrupt and they create tremendous damage in this world. Some were very benevolent monarchs. And that's when democracy began to grow as an option because they realized the Bible was not same, simply saying a monarchy is the only way to go. Hebrew, the Republic, makes a very good case for this. So the Torah we would call a theocracy, not a democracy. The idea that human beings have rights, obviously we were created in the divine image. That's the whole basis of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States is based on the Torah's view. But... At the same time, democracy also suggests everybody can do whatever they like. There are laws. There are divine laws. There are the seven universal Noahide laws that everybody has to abide by. And there's the laws of the land that are based on that. So it's not just a complete free-for-all to avoid anarchy, but it's also not necessarily monarchy is the Torah's way of leadership. And that's why King, uh, George Washington did not want to be called king. And the idea of a king of that type of absolute monarchy, on a monarch's power, was rejected. And I would say that from a Torah point of view, that's accurate, it's consistent, unless that monarch is the epitome and the personification, embodiment of Bittl. Melech HaMashiach. They say Mashiach is a king. That's what he will be like. Okay. So we have a few more. Um, I want to do a little follow-up on last week's parshas, not to wait till next year, just to cover um, a few questions that came in. So let me do something on parshas Ekev and parshat Eir. Yesterday we read Ekev. Uh, yesterday we read parshat Eir, rather, and the week before Ekev. Why does the Rebbe quote Ani Hashem Alekecha, where the Pesach is um, talking about Eni Hashem Alekecha, um, 
מתחילת השנה עד אחרי השנה. אין אשר לקחה בו. Talking about Israel, especially special divine providence that God watches over it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So the person is asking, why is the Abish to why does the Rebbe quote that pasuk as a proof that Hashem is guarding and protecting the Yidden and Eretz Yisrael? If Rashi explains and says that Hashem is watching and deciding if it will have good or bad decrees. In other words, bad decrees are and have been in the equation. So Rashi Taka says that what does it mean that God watches over this land? He watches over it and he determines whether it be good decrees and bad decrees. So the question is, how is the Rebbe quoting that as saying that, that it's always protected and guarded? So think about, so it seems like a good question, but if you think about it, you realize Rashi is not coming to contradict what it says in the Pesach. He's coming to explain it. The Pesach says, That you cannot take away. God is watching this land more than any other land. Now let me qualify what that means. That doesn't mean God is not watching the other lands. It goes back to what we spoke about with the veils and the concealment. There are places where you see divine providence more prominent, more revealed. And there are places where it's more concealed. But there's divine providence everywhere. Let's make that clear. But Israel is like the promised land. It's a holy land. Every land was created by God. Like every place on earth. And yet there are places that are called holier than others. Holy means that it has more bitla, as the Altareb explains in chapter 6 in Tanya. It has more selflessness. So it's more of a keli, a container to channel a transcendence, divine transcendence. Same thing with providence. That's what the verse says. Rashi is explaining that this means that God is taking special care. When you take special care of your child more than you would of a stranger, it goes both ways. You're much more careful in providing the child everything it needs. And you're also more careful to protecting the child from something that is, that is destructive. The bad decrees is also part of providence. It's because in a very sensitive place, a beautiful place like Israel, everything is like I described in previous classes. A piece of dust on your finger is not much, but a piece of dust on your eyeball is very irritating. So the holier the place, the more providence there is, the more God is watching. So bad decree is not that that God is causing problems in Israel. It means that yes, when the Jews had sinas chinam, baseless and senseless hatred for each other, the Beis Amigdash could not stand. Because it's a very sensitive place and it needs a unity. So that's also part of providence. As it says in many Sfarim, Zoya and other places, that even when a person is afflicted, it's coming from a, from a loving place because that's what you do when you love someone and there's an infection, you're going to do whatever it takes to get rid of the infection. It's not necessarily pleasant, but it's also part of the deeper love and the deeper providence. Okay, next question. What does it mean to bless God? Does he really need blessings? So in Pasha Ekev, we talk a lot about blessings. the blessings we make on food and other benefits that we have. What can we possibly give to him, to God? Are we just trying to flatter him? Aren't we fooling ourselves when we try to bless him? Please explain what it means and why we do it so often in Judaism. The truth is, in order of the questions, Actually, I, I'm talking now, Ekev. Also, Ein Hashem was in Parshas Ekev. It's fine. My mistake. Let's correct that. So there's another question in Ekev about the blessings. Please explain what it means and why we do it so often in Judaism. May you be blessed. Thank you. 
So the word blessing, yes, on one hand, the Gemara says clearly, it's a, it's a sign of gratitude. It's not because God needs it. But you're given something. Someone gives you a gift. You say thank you. Not because he needs your thank you. You, you need it to show gratitude. So a bracha, when a person eats food and doesn't make a blessing, it's like someone giving you food and serving you and you just ignore them. As if you deserve it. Sense of entitlement. So a bracha, number one, is just simply gratitude. Going deeper, the word baruch, Chassidus explains, comes from the word hamshacha, bracha v'hamshacha. Hamavrich es It's a channel. It's a graft. It's a channel that channels down the divine energy into the spark in the food, like we say in Parshish Ekev as well. Loya lechem levade yichi adam. Not on bread alone does a person live, but on the mechit piyavaya, on the divine spark within it. A bracha is revealing the spark and connecting it channeling and drawing down the bracha of God. So it's not for God per se, but it's for God because God wants us to transform this world. So the bracha is amshacha. And that finally leads us to the idea, yes, not that God needs the blessing as in he's lacking something, but he wants to have a, a home in this world. So when you make a bracha, you're actually drawing down that godliness. And it's also for God a certain nachas ruach lefonai that you fulfill what God wants us to do. Brings nachas to the Ebishter. Brings joy to God. Okay, so then a few more questions on Pasha Day. If the Torah goes out of its way not to use harsh language, as in adding extra words not to even insult an animal by saying an animal that's not pure, so it says, instead of Temea, why in Parsha A does it say there are blessings and curses? It should have said from one mountain will come revealed blessings and from the other mountain will come hidden blessings. Well, that's exactly what it does say. The problem is the way we interpret the word klola in school, so we become trained to think in curses. In the word with the word curse, the true word for curse and blessing is really cause and effect and should really be revealed blessings and concealed blessings. You have to just know how to translate it and interpret it. As I discussed last week, that it's a bracha. It's a matana, a gift, to know what path to go on, and also a gift to know what path not to go on. So in that sense, it's not the curse in the way we'd say someone cursed you. And I don't like that word. It's not the right word because it's mis- misrepresenting the idea. The idea is, it's telling us, this is the consequence. You put your hand in fire, this is what happened. That's not a curse, that's actually a blessing. That don't, to, to make me avoid putting my hand in fire because it gets burned. This I discussed last week more at length. Okay, there's some more questions, but I'm going to leave that for maybe next week or a lot of the time. Let me see what else. Let's talk about... Um, we'll talk about some follow-up. So a few weeks ago, the question was asked, why in Shulchan Aruch, in the Code of Jewish Law, don't we have more direct reference to the mitzvah, the great mitzvah of all, the greatest mitzvah of all, Avis Yisrael? Even though there's reference made, but not in any way close to, let's say, the laws of Shabbos or the laws of Pesach and so on. So I responded to that because it's a fundamental principle and something that in Shulchan Aruch, you're also not going to have a lot, it talks about derech eretz. It's implicit. Derech eretz, respect, so there are laws that talk about it, but there are things that are fundamentals. 
even the laws of Chinuch, and others that almost precede Shulchan Aruch. So there are laws, obviously, and other places that talk about education, but still, there are things that are so fundamental in principle. Even talking about God himself. So there are opinions that God is not one of the mitzvahs, many mitzvahs that count the mitzvahs, say believing in God is not one of the mitzvahs, because it's above being a mitzvah, because if you don't have that, all the mitzvahs fall. That's an axiom that precedes the mitzvahs. So similarly, you could say the same idea. That was more or less what Howe tried to explain it. So this follow-up goes, I don't think that your answer about why there's very little in the Shulchan Aruch about Avis Yisrael is accurate. You suggested that because it's so fundamental, that's why it was omitted. If I understood you correctly, first, if I stood you correctly, first, Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Samid, which means I stand humbled or nullified before you always, right in the beginning of Shulchan Aruch, as well as other fundamental principles, is clearly a fundamental principle. However, it is mentioned in Shulchan Aruch. It's the beginning, actually. So it is clear that even fundamental ideas are discussed. Next, the, the Shulchan Aruch does discuss Avis Yisrael, but only very briefly. If it was as you say, it would not have been discussed at all. But most importantly, if the Shulchan Aruch does not discuss it, how are we to know how to practice it? It seems like a blaring omission and provides credibility to those who argue that it is not as, fun, it is not as fundamental as some like to make it. Well, I stand by what I said. It doesn't mean that there is a merit to your question, and it needs to be explored further, and I'm glad that we're having this discussion, and I invite others to weigh in. The fact that it's mentioned Shulchan Aruch is because at the end of the day, it is a mitzvah. The Torah does say it is a mitzvah, and we didn't say, why does the Torah mention it? You could say the Torah should also assume that it's a given. Because the fact is, it is a mitzvah. Second thing is it's a cloud gold potato, a cloud gold potato. No one argues with that. So anyone that's going to come and try to say that's not as fundamental, that's ridiculous. The fact that some people don't practice it, that's their own issue, or don't practice it properly. But the but the mitzvahs are clear. Cloud gold potato after Hillel's words. That's Rabbi Akiva. Hillel's words. That's kol potato kulin gemara shabbos daflamet omivays. That's the entire potato. Altareb explains it in chapter thirty-two in Tanya how fundamental it is. So there's no question it's fundamental nature. That's not, that's not up for discussion. The only question is, why is it not elaborated, as you say, the details? Now you could also make a case, because once you state, obviously, so there's a whole other body of Torah, Primisat Torah, that talks about how you, how, how you build, obviously, so. So it's not so much halacha. Halacha is the details. What does it entail? Like what does the Lama Test Malachas and Shabbos entail? What, what is Chometz? What is Matzah? What do you do on Yom Kippur? What don't you do? With Avis Yisrael, you could ask, how do you reach Avis Yisrael? That already is the Sifre Musa and Sifre Kabbalah and Sifre Chsidis. But I, I do see a question, why isn't it spelled out? You know, it should be a whole simon, a Sifre Shulchan Aruch, Hilchus Avis Yisrael, the details of it. So here you could, you could make the case that maybe the details, which are like Achnos Sarchim, inviting guests, or Bikr Chelim, visiting the sick, are all subsets of Avis Yisrael, and they are discussed each in their own place. Since Avis Yisrael, in addition to what I said, it's such a fundamental axiom, axiomatic principle, that so many parts of Teira are outgrowths of it, or subsets, and those are discussed. So you don't need to make a simon Avis Yisrael. It's really the undercurrent of all halacha. 
All halachas end of the day, like Alter Rebbe says in Tanya when he explains, how could Hill say kola teda kula? What do you mean? There's a whole body of teda that's benodim lemokim. When you daven, kosher, karbonus, and so on. They're all between you and God. What does it have to do with Avitz Yisrael? How could he say, is the whole teda? So he explains because the whole point of Avitz is, is, is the, the dominance of spirit over matter. and And that's the whole point of teda. To make spirit dominate over matter, over the physical. And that's Shabbos and Kashrus and, and Tumantara and everything. So in a way you could say every din of Shulchanara, when you're daven, you're essentially the Hagbarah the spirit over matter. So it all leads to Avis Yisrael. We actually, before davening, say, As explained in Derech Mitzvah on the Mitzvah of Avis Yisrael, so you could say it's really the undercurrent everywhere, and in some places it specifically spells out what the laws are in each of the details, with obviously soul just being a foundation behind it all. That would be what I would add to what we spoke about. Another, one more follow-up. Perhaps the reason why the tribe of Benjamin was able to be reinstated is because the prohibition against them was made by man, and man can take off, can take it off, whereas the prohibition against the nation of Moyav, Moyav was made by God. And only God could take that off. This is following up last week, we spoke last two weeks about Tuba of Chamisha Sabov, that one of the things that happened on that day was that Binyamin was re-welcomed into the, into the community, marriage after they were excommunicated due to regarding Shaduchim and marriage with them. And someone asked the question, so why, so if that, if that was not permanent, why is the prohibition of, of interact, intermarrying with, uh, in, in, of uh, a conversion with Moyav prohibited. So he's saying the difference between man, take upon themselves, they can remove that, whereas God said not to do that. Also on that prohibition against Moyav, only men were excluded from marrying into the Jewish nation, even if they convert, but not women. So it wasn't just a special case for Ruth. Okay, that's an additional point, correct. I stand corrected with that. And finally, one more follow-up, which was not really a question. Greetings, Rabbi Jacobson. Shalom. Thank you, first, for your prompt, for your prompt reply. Secondly, yes, by all means, you see fit, whether or not my name is mentioned or not. My main concern is for all to know how one in the proper manner in prayers for our world, shalom, peace, that we should all be praying for peace in this world. This is a follow-up to a follow-up. So I just wanted to read it to acknowledge this person. Thank you for your wisdom and knowledge and guidance, sincerely. Have a good day. Okay. So with that, we conclude this episode of My Life Chassidus Applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Again, a very good chedesh, especially chedesh Elul. May it be a chedesh of true achana for the new year, true preparation, followed by the accounting of the past year, a chedesh harachimim. And this month, we should be bestowed with all the compassion from above in a revealed way, the deepest levels, we deserve it after all these years. And it should be a Chedesh HaGeula even before Rosh Hashanah. So we march into the new year of Tov Shem Pei Gimel. Gula HaMitiz VaShlema, especially through our work in Yofutsu Maynesecha Chutza. So we're here, Chesidus Applied, every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone be well and be blessed. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chesidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chasidisapply.com slash donate.